welcome to episode six of Talking Musicology, a bi-monthly podcast where we discuss recent publications in the field of musicology and finish each episode with research in the round, our roundup of selected new musicological publications. My name is Stephen Graham and I'm here as ever with Liam Cagney. In this episode, we'll be looking at two articles on contemporary music of different kinds, uh, each of which was published in the last few months of 2016. We'll chat in a few minutes about Mike Vaughan's Register, Dialect, Convolution and Crosstalk, Reflections on the Zones of Influence and Hybridity between Electroacoustic, Acousmatic Music, Techno and IDM. But we're going to start our discussion with Class Coulombier's Multitemporality, an Analytical Approach to Contemporary Music, Embracing Concepts of Gilles Deleuze and Felix Guattari, which was published in Music Analysis towards the end of 2016. Columbia is a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Leuven, whose work, in his own words, focuses on finding adequate means to analyse complex music, which can no longer be approached using existing analytical methods. He's currently studying the music of Brian Ferniehow and Georges Apergi from a meta-methodological perspective, a term that we might come back to in a moment, I suspect. And his work has appeared in Tempo, the Dutch Journal of Music Theory, and in a volume on Klaus-Stefan Mankopf. The article we'll be discussing in this episode builds quite directly on Coulombier's PhD dissertation, which was called Multitemporality, Analyzing Simultaneous Time Layers in Selected Compositions by Elliot Carter and Klaus-Stefan Mankopf, since it uses these same composers as test cases for the development of a kind of meta-analytical approach to contemporary music, which draws directly on concepts taken from Deleuze Guattari. Put simply, Columbia uses the figure of the rhizome to frame the field of contemporary music, which he sees as a complex and decentralized territory in constant flux. Columbia thinks that DNG's notions of de-territorialization and territorialization and mobile centers offer helpful ways into this shifting terrain of contemporary music, where, for example, segmentary lines and lines of flight might allow us to draw temporary connections or disconnections between what he calls seemingly unrelated parts of the repertoire. This would not lead to the development of specific analytical systems, which might be applicable to all contemporary music, but instead produce what he calls, after Deleuze, a cartography of variables, where specific entry points or segmentary lines might connect music together in perhaps unexpected ways. As a concrete application of this meta-analytical approach, Columbia uses multi-temporality as a tool for drawing connecting lines or for territorializing music from Elia Carter and Klaus-Stefan Mankopf, where structural polyrhythm in the case of Carter and the so-called polywork in the case of Mankopf serve as the binding musical techniques. The article is in two clear parts. It begins by surveying the broad field of contemporary music, where it's described as a kind of a decentered archipelago of styles and languages, as well as considering the problems that this framework presents for the music analyst. It then, in its second part, takes an extended dive into the aforementioned composers, discussing seven of their compositions as it goes within the framework of multi-temporality. So, Liam, what do you make of all this? Well, I learned quite a lot through reading this article about Carter and Mankopf's uh, respective work and their different approaches to composition and structuring composition temporarily. And 
in as much as Coulombier uses Deleuze's concepts herein, it's quite a topical article because nobody with a pair of eyes will have been able to miss the degree to which Deleuze has infiltrated musicology in the past few years in a manner that's similar to, say, 10 or 15 years ago, Derrida and Foucault. In being instructive with regards to Carter and Mankoff and in being instructive with regards to uh, disciplinary trends, I found it quite interesting. Uh, I did have a few reservations, which I'll get to shortly, but before then I'll just mention one or two of the things which I found useful here, or which I think worked. I think what worked best was when Coulombier jettisoned the Deleuzean terminology and when he just left it aside and when he engaged with how the composer actually structured a particular piece or some of the musical characteristics of, say, Carter's music. I found it quite interesting to read about how Carter and Mankoff both compose with characters or personage in a way which is similar to Messiaen, audibly distinct musical characters within the drama of their work which evolve and which interact with other characters and which move towards the end of their work and some kind of liquidation or some resolution of the drama. I learned a few things about Mankoff, whose work I wasn't so familiar with. To come on to one of the criticisms, though, uh, I'm just going to come right out and say that I don't think that Deleuze is accurately deployed here in, in terms of uh, his concepts. And this really, I suppose, broaches the issue of how a lot of this French theory is used, in parentheses, in musicology. Um, I'm quite suspicious about this idea of using a philosopher or using their concepts in musicology towards some type of uh, particular end. Uh, in Deleuze's case, mainly because of the extreme complexity of his thought, I think it's very difficult and ambitious to try to integrate musical analysis with Deleuzean aesthetics or metaphysics in the way that's being attempted here, and I don't really think it quite works. Yeah, I, I tend to agree on the use of Deleuze because apart from the complexity of these concepts in their original kind of kind of application and development in Deleuze and in Deleuze Guattari, I feel like by their kind of nature, they're kind of generalist, if you like. They're deliberately loose and nebulous. Um, now, not so much in how they're discussed and applied in a political and, and social sense by Deleuze and Guattari, but in their kind of core operating procedures, there, there's a kind of a, a vagueness to them, which is helpful in some respects. But when you come to apply these kinds of concepts to fields of creative practice, that kind of generalism or that kind of vagueness, if you like, means that they can serve as a kind of a catch all, a kind of a panacea. Um, where they might look as if they're doing some analytical work or some argumentative work, but really they're kind of operating in a kind of a, a bolt-on, almost kind of astrological way, where they're so vague that you can't necessarily disagree with their application, but you're kind of left, you're kind of left with a, a kind of a, a flaccid um, feeling because you're not quite sure where things have gone wrong, but you kind of have a sense that things have gone wrong somewhere along the way, and I felt like that was the case in this article. Now, that's not to jump to the negative by any means, because I think there's lots to recommend this article, such as the clarity of its organization, such as the brief but concise and quite effective summary of the idea of what music analysis might be doing when it's 
kind of coming to analyze contemporary music. Those are some strong features of the article. But when we come to the application of the theory, we're slightly at sea because the theory itself is, as I said, so generalist and so kind of vague. I'm not sure if they're the right terms to use to describe um, things like rhizome, but they are deliberately applicable to lots of different things. And when Columbier applies them to music in this way, I'm not sure he's actually saying anything about that music or about contemporary music in general. As Columbia says a couple of times, repetition and generality are opposed to each other in Deleuze's uh, metaphysical schema. Deleuze's difference in repetition, among various other things, is a critique of the thinking of the world by way of identity. And one of the four ways in which he says we do this, uh, one of the four attributes of representational thought, is identity in the concept. Like he essentially says identity in the concept is a fallacy. What he means by that is applying received concept in a non-critical way. So, for example, using the concept of the idea, which comes from Plato and goes through Kant, in a sort of passive way, as if we already know what it means. So there's this philosophy, I think, is a, a philosophy of activity and affirmation and so on, so that if he is using the concept of the idea, he does not just assume that its meaning is identical as it passes through time, but needs to be continually reformulated. This applies to how Deleuze's own concepts are used here, and I'd say generally in, in a lot of musicology. So the concept of repetition is used here in a representational manner. It's used in such a way that assumes that it's univocal, its meaning is self-identical, and I don't think that's the case. I think if one is to engage with the concept of repetition within musical analysis or within a particular work, it can't just be, in a way, a representational way. It has to be brought out of the work itself. One of the ways in which I think Columbia misrepresents Deleuzean philosophy herein is in the use of the concept of multiplicity. Within Columbia's text, multiplicity, I think it's just taken to mean a sort of variety or diversity of some phenomenon. But within Deleuze's philosophy, multiplicity has a very specific meaning. And according to Manuel Delanda, it's a meaning derived from mathematics. So a multiplicity in maths is an object which doesn't need external coordinates to define its area. It defines itself sort of imminently. I'm just going to quote from Manuel Delanda's Intensive Science and Virtue of Philosophy. A Deleuzean multiplicity takes as its first defining feature these two traits of a manifold, its variable number of dimensions, and more importantly, the absence of a supplementary or higher dimension imposing an extrinsic coordination, hence an extrinsically defined unity. As Deleuze writes, Multiplicity must not designate a combination of the many and the one, but rather an organization belonging, belonging to the many as such, which has no need whatsoever of unity in order to form system. So multiplicity herein is a type of imminent definition of an object which doesn't rely on external coordinates. If we bring this into musical analysis, I think you could analogize with pitch classes. So... A pitch class is a symbol which gives coordinate for a certain note, and the coordinate in the system is external to the sound event itself. It's sort of this platonic ideal, these pitch classes just exist somewhere or nowhere, really, and we can use them to locate musical or acoustical events. Columbia herein still adheres to that type of kind of platonic, idealistic thought in talking about pitch classes and so on. 
and not engaging with them critically. If we were to apply the sort of Deleuzean multiplicity approach to the musical object, I think that would have to entail an imminent definition of the musical event, of the acoustical event, which would it, which could not happen without a sort of critique of all of these music analytical presuppositions with regards to pitch passes and so on. It's such a massive topic for me that I just don't think you can apply Deleuze in this minor way. Deleuze is thought really is quite radical, requires a really a massive depth of engagement with, and if one is to bring it into musical analysis, I think really some of the music analytical fundamentals need to be questioned before that can be done. I, I agree, actually. You've you've honed in on something important, which is lacking here. Well, as I said, it this it feels like a kind of a, a bolt-on use of theory where it's not necessarily embedded and entrenched in the experience of the music which is being brought forth. Instead, it's a kind of a putting the two of them side by side and hoping that they latch onto each other in a kind of a um, a kind of a, a glue-like way. But actually, they don't. They just kind of sit alongside each other. So this is not a kind of a, a causal link from Deleuze to the music or anything more complex or interesting in the way you've laid out, like a, re, a reformulation of the very principles of what music analysis can do. This is instead looking in a slightly superficial way through the lens of Deleuze and Guattari onto music and using their ideas to give a, a different sheen to the music, but not necessarily causing a kind of a, a re-rooting of what music analysis might be. Now, in a sense, it's difficult because Deleuze kind of booby traps thinkers that come after him because any application of his theory is going to be essentialized in some way. In other words, it has to be representational. Exactly. It has it has to be specific. So, in order to use his thought, it's it's a very tricky balancing act between um, adopting some of his ideas but staying inside their full implications if you like and I, and he, as you said as you laid out so interestingly he doesn't manage to do that at all here instead like i said it's a it's more of a kind of a sheen which he gives to this work he gives using very kind of almost cliche concepts at this point like the rhizome so it's it's difficult because in part i have a lot of sympathy for what he's trying to do here which is to i guess map out a different kind of perspective on the field of contemporary music and he's using philosophy which he seems to have some clear handle on to some degree but in the end i'm not sure that i'm convinced in any way by his attempts to link these two things together you know in a way we come back to territory which is very well covered which is the opposition between the kind of drastic and the gnostic so a lot of people have talked about this or even going back to susan sontag uh, erotics versus hermeneutics what you what 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 was implied by what you were saying there about Deleuze was that we might need to reinsert ourselves in a moment-to-moment way when we're doing an analysis. In other words, re-examine the very principles of that analysis in every moment in order to live up to what Deleuze is doing, and that calls back to the Sontagian Suzanne Cusick thing of music analysis being a process of affective, constantly kind of in flux analytical procedure whereas what actually happens is it tends to get abstracted into a kind of a stable representational essence which is what has happened here and as you've said that kind of doesn't fit very neatly or smoothly with what Deleuze was getting at with his very challenging and and radical um, ideas about knowledge and representation 
So it's difficult. And I think that problem actually runs through this article in other ways, because it's not just in the application of theory where it's a little bit vague and generalist, because when he actually comes to talk about the music and indeed also describe the field of contemporary music, he ends up saying rather, again, rather kind of sweeping generalist things. So, for example, he uses ideas such as post-serial, multi-layered compositional reasoning to try and describe what Carter and Mankoff are up to. But every time he uses terms like that, I just think, well, what composer operating in the 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s would not be writing with a kind of a multi-layered approach, would not be writing in a kind of a post-serial world? So I'm not sure what he ends up saying about the music or about contemporary music in general, which is all that original. Not to say that there's not many interesting things in the article, but I am left slightly at sea with, with what he's trying to argue in relation to this music. I guess it comes down, as you very rightly know, to what each of us thinks musical analysis is for. Uh, Columbia right? quote, music analysis is basically concerned with the relationships between uni unique compositions and their musical context and implies relating each specific case to a more general context against which its peculiarities stand out, end of quote. I think a lot of people would agree with that. I personally wouldn't, and I suspect you wouldn't either. But no, I wouldn't. That's not to invalidate, of course, uh, the type of analysis that comes from this view. And I think that, for me, there is a tension throughout the article, as I, as I noted, between the very useful and interesting remarks about Carter and Mankoff, which are completely unrelated to Deleuze, and the problematic framing of it within the uh, Deleuzean contextual framework, and specifically the Deleuzean uh, framework pertaining to temporality and time. And I'll just mention briefly, in kind of moving on from this aspect, that I would hope that if somebody were to discuss uh, music in terms of Deleuze's concept of time, that Deleuze's concept of time be engaged with to a, a higher degree. Uh, Columbia does mention Deleuze's article on Boulez's Proust and Counting Time, but he doesn't really engage with it too much, and there's a lot of interesting stuff in there which actually would very much apply to the discussion he's making of Carter and Mankoff. But to move on, what did you think of the parallel between Carter and Mankoff? The parallels he draws between Carter and Mankoff feel a little thin to me. When he comes to the music, again, I feel like when he discusses these seven compositions, I feel like his his perspective is far too general. So, for example, he uses categories like interruption and simultaneity, layered time and linearity, polyprocessuality, proportion, isomorphy, character, coherence and disassociation, tempo and meter. And I'm, again, I'm not sure that any of these categories are all that specific. You could pretty much use any of these categories and apply them to two other contemporary composers, let's say Mark andre and Rebecca Saunders, and fit them in in a comparative way to each of those categories. They're just too general, it seems to me. Notwithstanding some interesting points in passing, for example, the one that you mentioned, which I agree was a high point of the article where he talks about character, the importance of character in each of these composers' music, and makes a convincing point about how, unrelated to his analytical framework, some of the pieces he's discussing operate in terms of the kind of drama of given characters, whether the character is a meter or an instrumental arrangement or something. Um, that's, a, that's a slightly more convincing analytical kind of response to this music. 
the other categories I found less interesting. When I was reading it, and particularly when I when I got to that passage which you've just mentioned, I kind of was asking myself, why not just focus on one composition and what's internal to it and its character? Maybe just one composition by one of the composers or one by each of them. For example, Esprit Rule, Esprit Du by, uh, by Carter, which is mentioned in relation to these auditory characters or personages. It's, it's, it's a really fascinating piece of musical art for me. And focusing only on temporality feels like it's kind of arbitrary since the composition as it appears as a manifest is multifaceted in such a way that every acoustical dimension is implied in the others. When it's such an ingrained habit for all of us to criticise serialism and the fact that serialism arbitrarily divided sound into you know four or five different parameters, it seems at the same time that that's something that's happening here if we just focus on temporality. We're focusing on one dimension and bracketing out all of the others in a way that I'm not sure if, if it's so useful for really getting to grips with the auditory surface. That, that said, it is useful for understanding how these composers structured and distributed the material within their composition. Just, so just to finish up on this, can I just ask a quick question? Do you think his analyses helped you understand or hear the music differently? Yes, yes, I would say so, but not the Deleuzean stuff. I was listening to Esprit Rude, Esprit Du, and also the piece Medusa, which is really beautiful, uh, oboe concerto, really bizarre, strange-sounding, microtonal, multiphonic oboe concerto. Yeah, it's, it's hard to put a finger on because I wasn't listening to it necessarily in terms of polytemporality or multi-temporality. But all the same, in having kind of spent time in reading about the, some of the background to these pieces and thinking about them and then listening to the pieces, yeah, I think it did. It did make me more engaged with the music. It did give me some sort of handle uh, to take on it while I, was, while I was listening. Yeah, I mean, I agree up to a point, but I think coming back to what you were saying a moment ago, I think in focusing so much on multi-temporality, we ended up with a bit of a limited sense of how this music is operating. So, for example, I listened to Homage um, to Adorno and I listened to Chamber Concerts um, from Mankopf. And there's so much sonic detail and affective richness in that music that I'm not sure that Columbia ever really gets to with his framework because it's, it is so constrained by his, his um, overarching organising kind of uh, ideas. So I do think that he helped me understand and hear this music differently but I think he might have profited from as you said maybe focusing on one piece from each composer giving us more detail about how the music operates and then maybe launching out from there into more broad uh, broader points. He's obviously a very talented uh, analyst very good at at thinking about music but uh, for me it would be helpful if certain inheritances were were just left behind and we we engage with musical analysis in terms of I don't know where we are right now. Hybridity is a familiar notion. We speak of everything from hybrid animals these days to hybrid cars. Hybridity also features in many musical fields these days, in the intermixing of genres and the combination of elements from heterogeneous stylistic traditions. Whilst hybridity is nothing new, of course, in Western music, it's always been there to some degree, particularly visible, I think, in the change from one period of musical practice to another. The increased presence of hybridity in Western music in recent times 
expresses the influence of that global jamboree that is the World Wide Web. Whilst, of course, other factors are certainly at play, the breaking down of geographical space by modern mass media does seem to be key here. Hybridity is the focus of composer Mike Vaughan's article, Register, Dialect, Convolution and Crosstalk, Reflections on the Zones of Influence and Hybridity between Electroacoustic, Acousmatic, Music, Techno and Intelligent Dance Music, published in Contemporary Music Review, Volume 35, Number 2. Vaughan's article explores in a loose way the parallel presence of hybridity in, on the one hand, academic acousmatic composition, and on the other, electronic dance music. Vaughan is Professor of Composition at Keele University, and his article was draws on observations drawing from his compositional practice, as well as his long-standing engagement with general tense in composition. In its original form, Vaughan's paper was presented to a conference Embracing Rhythm, Welcoming Abstraction on the Zones of Influence and Hybridity between Electroacoustic, Acousmatic, Techno and IDM, which is held at Salford University in November 2013. Accordingly, and as the phrase reflections on in the title of Vaughan's article will have ticked you off, there's no sustained argument in this article with examples and so forth. Rather, there are some thematically related observations without an attempt to make them cohere within a developed theoretical framework. So, onto the article itself. Vaughan proposes an interesting way of understanding hybridity. In a nutshell, Vaughan views zones of influence and hybridity between different repertoires that are generally understood to occupy different registral strata as a form of environmental adaptation expressed through the evolution of musical language. Again, for Vaughan, hybridity manifests the influence of environment and environmental adaptation expressed in a tangible way through the evolution of musical language. So this is a sort of ecological view which Vaughan doesn't expand to any great degree, but which I think is certainly suggestive. Vaughan proposes that we think of hybridity by way of linguistic analogy, and here he brings in the concepts of register and dialect, uh, which we'll discuss now in a moment. The article's second main point is that, quote, the interactions between different forms of electroacoustic art music and electronic dance music can be characterised as much by the convergence of the technological means of production and dissemination as they are by attempts to resolve the familiar aesthetic tensions between conflict and meanings that are embedded in primary musical materials and their associated compositional methodologies. End of quote. It's a bit of a mouthful, but the point being that the manifestation of hybridity is to do with the technological grounds uh, which are common to these different musical practices. So I'm going to ask you now, Stephen, uh, in opening up this article, what did you think of the concepts of register and dialect as applied to musical hybridity? I think at their core, they might have been interesting if they had actually been developed as part of a cohesive argument in this article. I liked the the, the central metaphor or kind of theoretical point of view here, which is, as you pointed out, using the idea of language evolution and specifically within that, framework and um, register and dialect to kind of analogize the process of um, musical evolution if you like now there's all sorts of problems wrapped up in that for first of all music doesn't necessarily evolve in the same way that um, organisms evolve evolve is a very loaded historical cultural term and i'm not sure if applying it to music in such a innocent way is all that convincing 
However, the idea of language and the idea of music are, of course, closely linked together. There are some arguments from um, cultural anthropologists and cultural archaeologists and so on um, that would suggest that music is at the root of language and vice versa. And many people have seen links between um, the two systems as kind of forms of communication governed by rules of different kinds to do with syntax and semantics. So the, the link from music to language works quite well, I think, or could work quite well. But as you've said, this is an article which is posed as reflections on, as opposed to being a, a kind of a cohesive through line, which develops in a um, kind of detailed and nuanced way, any kind of theoretical perspective. So on the one hand, there was something, there was a hook here, which I was interested in, register and dialect might be useful terms to think about how music evolves and inter kind of penetrates across different fields or social kind of locations. But I found myself increasingly frustrated by this article's refusal to ever pause on any one idea that halfway through we get a statement about the theoretical basis of these ideas and we get supposedly three types of register and dialectical hybridity in music. But as soon as these are mentioned, we move on to something else. Now, that's part and parcel of the nature of this piece. And I, it would be unfair to criticise it on that ground to too much, too much of an extent. But still, I found it a bit of a frustrating read. What did you make of Register and Dialect? Well, as you say, I think that they are interesting as metaphors, but of limited value when they haven't been developed within a theoretical context. And here I'm thinking in particular of linguistics and of musical semiotics. And um, just to mention the positive aspect in a bit more detail, register and dialect in music, as, as in speech, Vaughan is saying, indicate social status or background as much as anything else. So there is an elevated register and there's a well, supposedly less elevated register uh, in music as there is in speech which indicates one's social background. Vaughan is sort of suggesting a kind of musical geography in this way which I think is definitely suggestive and, and it, I think there's more there maybe to be to be developed uh, than have been done in this article. Could you just because I wasn't sure what the what he was getting at with these two terms he says Dialect can be viewed as corresponding to different synchronous manifestations of a culture-related musical practice, whilst register might describe two different contexts for similar musical material across art and popular music. I'm not sure what he means by that. Right. Well, I think that uh, maybe the meaning here is intentionally not hammered down. I think it could be uh, intentionally maybe a little bit open. Five people can say the same sentence and depending on the way in which those five words are said, um, the person speaking will be taken more or less seriously, as is the case perhaps with certain types of music. So certain sounds can feature in an acoustic composition and uh, be received with the stroke of the chin. The same sounds can feature in a piece of music with a 4-4 beat behind it and not at all be taken seriously. In fact, they'll be invalid because of the 4-4 beat. I'm just thinking in relation to electronic music, for example, of an act like Ottecker, who come from a background of hip-hop and electro and techno, and uh, that's very much where their roots are and where a lot of their audience still is. But 
when you look at the music compositionally and in terms of the technological sophistication of that music, it's beyond, I think, the majority of what, what uh, academic composers are doing. Nonetheless, more some of the acoustic community will definitely take their music seriously within the general field of musicology, uh, in which there's a certain picture of um, our Western tradition, Osaka will definitely not feature because they're, they're putting these sounds in a certain context with a 4-4 beat behind them, and therefore it's sort of low. It's as if someone were speaking with a, they're not clipping their words and speaking in a dialect, which is uh, the, the dialect in which the Queen's English is supposed to be spoken. So is dialect something that you are and register as something that you become? I'm just not sure what he means, but how he's differentiating these two terms. Right, well, I've got no answer there. I went so far with these concepts and I didn't really seek to go any further. I just assumed that they're kind of put out there and then moved on from, I mean, there isn't really any extended development of them, as you say, and what they mean. As well as the kind of, um, the, 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 I guess, the again, the vagueness of how these terms are used, I think summing that up, um, the kind of microcosm of that is the lack of music in this article. There's almost no music right. mentioned. Or even well, artists. Is, I think the, the main weakness of the article. Ideas are thrown out there, sometimes in a language which is a little bit unclear, and some of the sentences uh, have to be said are very long and the syntax is a bit unclear. But there are no examples then to, to kind of show us in a concrete way what these uh, abstract ideas are, are supposed to mean. And I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I guess Frank we're all Sa- going to read this and just come up with our own examples in our heads, respective heads. Um, and that's what I did, but I definitely found it a bit more difficult to engage with on that thing. Well, especially when when you find some of the claims he's making rather unconvincing, or at least in need of kind of teasing out a little bit, it it doesn't help his his argument when he doesn't actually give an example. If he'd given an example, it would have been an opportunity to test and to give some meat to the bones of his points. And in not doing that, I mean, this is just the basics, obviously, of of um, building an argument. And I'm not necessarily saying that he, or accusing him of not knowing how to build an argument. I'm just saying that in this article, the, the pace is so speedy and kind of hurried that we end up just rushing between kind of muddy passages of very dense language and then rather or somewhat banal contentions, uh, conclusions, and then a lot of sidetracking. I found these three tendencies unavoidable here. So a muddiness of argument, a kind of banality of conclusion, and then sidetracking where you get, um, a, suddenly you get a paragraph on something which does not seem related at all to the thrust of the argument or what he'd just been talking about. Then we move back into muddy discussion and then we get a slightly banal conclusion to the paragraph. Now I'm absolutely leaning onto the harsher um, elements of this art or the more negative judgments I had about the article because there was many passages that I enjoyed he's clearly a, a smart person and he clearly has some interesting things to say about um, this music and about this this field um, I just found some of it as I said some of it rather frustrating for all those reasons I was interested in a couple of other things one of which was the view which I guess is not particularly profound but which is which is still fairs to be made that intentional hybridity is often a form of critique in music, or it's a deliberate subversiveness, I was going to say, but subversiveness is a, is a much overused term. Uh, art and new music, 
something new as new, often sort of engage with hybridity intentionally in a manner that suggests newness and sort of confusion of received ideas go hand in hand. And that sort of suggests to me, from a music analytical point of view, that we're always in a strange position vis-a-vis new music when the whole point of new music is to create things we cannot represent with our previous concepts because they're hybrid or evasive. And yet we still cling to that way of thinking and talking about music. This is one of the things, one of the issues that were, as you said, raised and then briskly moved on from, so there wasn't too much uh, discussion of it, but it still intrigued me. Yeah, I mean, there's, there was many, many moments, and I, sh- I, 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 I guess it's just a habit of thought to, to focus on things which you can critique and pull apart. There's many, many moments here which I, I found myself either nodding along to or puzzling over in a kind of a productive way. So it's, it's not to harp on the negative at all. There was many interesting things here, and actually I'd be interested in reading a different style of piece from him, um, which wasn't maybe constrained by um, the idea of um, having to kowtow to themes of a conference or having to present as a kind of a reflection and so it's it's not to it's not to denigrate him as a thinker it's just to say that as his thought is presented here it's a little bit flubby as i said um can i can i just skip ahead to the end of the article because there was something there i wanted to discuss um he, he talks about he kind of moves along to a kind of a slightly bland sociological conclusion about why all this hy- supposed hybridity has been happening. And by the way, I'm not at all convinced that hybridity isn't a tired concept by this point in music sociology. I'm also not at all convinced that he has managed to convincingly frame either electroacoustic music or or IDM or EDM. I think, I think both ends of his spectrum are a little bit underdeveloped here um, and fall prey to some old... Um, slightly tired postmodern oppositions, but that's a side point, I guess. What I'm interested in is this idea which he comes to at the end when he is offering speculations about why this hybridity has happened and how we might approach it as contemporary music practitioners. He says, the need for such recognition resonates with Joe Kerman's view in respect of music analysis that a more comprehensive, humane and practical criticism can and should of music can and should be developed. Accepting that composition is also a form of criticism, it could be argued that, from the perspective of formal study, an interest in hybrid forms, with their ability to engage the wider cultural memory of the listener, is one possible response to the inherent tensions present within the study and practice of contemporary music. End quote. That seems to me to be that seems to me to hint at a kind of a recognition of marketplace imperatives and possibly um, a giving into those imperatives in a slightly problematic way. What did you make of this, Liam? I didn't get that from it. I just uh, I kind of um, dismissed it, I guess, without really engaging with it too much. I, I felt here that the invocation of criticism was actually confusing two different things, critique in the philosophical sense and then criticism and maybe like in a more hermeneutical sense, as we think of in relation to uh, writing about music generally. I think they are, they are two different things which he, he's confusing here. Composition is also a form of criticism. I think what he means is composition can also be a, a form of critique, um, which is another thing altogether. I, I, it's hard for me really to, to say yeah. what I think of it, because it's only 
one or two sentences uh, and it doesn't really go any further than that. It just seemed to me to be a strange point at which to end his, his article and his argument. Um, you're right, though, that he's conflating two forms of criticism here because Joe Kerman means criticism in a very discipline-specific sense of a particular way of writing about music, whereas he then uses the more broad sense of critique, um, which I guess composition might be seen as. Um, were there any other points in this article that you wanted to focus on or discuss? Some of what he said about the technological basis of um, of a much new music heterogeneous strands which end up intermixing because of the sort of mass media age that we're in. And I was trying to find a quotation by Marshall McLuhan, which was relevant here and that which I hash, half remembered, but instead I found a different quotation, which I'm going to read out. If a work of art is to explore new environments, it is not to be regarded as a blueprint, but rather as a form of action painting. End of quote. So this sort of resonated with Vaughan's view of hybrid art as environmental. Well, I really like this idea of not regarding uh, the musical work in terms of a blueprint. So we have kind of a model and then a copy, or we have this you know, pitch space and then the manifestation of the pitch space, as we were saying earlier, rather as a form of action painting. It sort of brings up an idea of artistic creation, compositional practice as based as much in intuition as in theory, as much in thinking by way of the material as in thinking by way of, I don't know, history and that type of thing. I think often art and contemporary movements are, are not driven by theoretical consciousness. It's more in the manner of action painting or something like that. That's tangential to this article and maybe it sort of links up the two articles we've been speaking of. But uh, I just thought I'd mention it. Yeah, no, it's interesting, especially because these two things, theory and practice, of course, are absolutely embedded in each other. So action painting is theoretical as much as writing about action painting is practical. On that note, we'll conclude, as usual, with research in the round. And um, I'll ask you first, Stephen, uh, has anything in particular stood up for you um, in terms of recent research or publications? Yes, I wanted to mention uh, The Critical Imperative, which is a special issue of the journal Popular Music, which comes out in January 2017. Uh, in the words of its two editors, Devin Powers and Tom Perchard, The Critical Imperative is a call for writing about popular music that places primacy on sounds as made and heard, and which is styled in a way that foregrounds not just academic rigour, but also imaginative description, creative interpretation and daring evaluation. While criticism is increasingly marginalised in the mainstream media, many writers and readers have constructed new spaces for musical reflection online, and this discourse, as sophisticated as it is public, represents a challenge to academic work on pop ensconced behind university paywalls. Of course, scholarly methods have their own virtues, and the eight essays that follow have taken up the challenge of marrying deep research and reflection with lively critical language, direct argument and formal experiment, end quote. So this issue, as I've just said, is an attempt to bring together and to some degree reconcile lively, alert, opinion-driven, non-academic writing with the imperatives of a kind of academic writing. 
And my article, which attempts to do that to some degree, is about the X Factor and reality television. There's also a very interesting piece from Adam Harper in there on internet music. There's a piece from Robin James where she talks about um, post-internet and post-genre. And there's many other very, very interesting pieces. So I would recommend that special issue of popular music. Well, I'm really interested by that and we haven't discussed this beforehand, but my choice for Research and Around is kind of open to that. It's the latest issue of Music and Literature, which isn't an academic journal. It's intellectual and, and so on, but it sort of foregrounds a lot of interesting work going on in fiction and music. The latest issue, number seven, has a big feature on Paul Griffiths, who wrote a very famous book about modern music and who was the music critic for years with The New Yorker. And he in it, there's an interview between Paul Griffiths and Matthew Mendes, uh, which is, yeah, it's quite contentious. And uh, Griffiths makes a lot of points which I wouldn't agree with, but he's sort of engaging with where criticism is uh, in 2016 or 2017. He says, for example, uh, the place of criticism in this world is indeed awkward, and I'm glad I didn't survive as a journalist into a time when every review must include a star rating. Criticism is for sure about judgment, stated or implied, but much more about understanding, to which the numbers from one to five have no relevance. Criticism in the sense of an engagement that strives to elucidate and interpret, rather than award points, seems to me to be integral to a shared culture and unsustainable without such a culture. He talks a little bit then about Haydn and Beethoven, and then he concludes, more than two centuries later, with the culture fast atomizing, criticism loses its function. So it's a bit doomy and grimy, but there's a lot of uh, fat to chew on there. That sounds really interesting. I'll be checking that one out myself. Yeah, that, I should say that that interview with Matthew Mendes is online at the Music and Literature website. All the rest of the content, which includes Griffith's fiction and uh, some of his criticism, is in the hard copy uh, issue of 7 of Music and Literature. Great. Can I just make one final point before sure. we finish, which is just to say that um, we've had some listener feedback from various quarters, um, email, comments on website, um, and so on. Um, we always really enjoy getting that feedback, so we would encourage our listeners to uh, to write into us with thoughts about uh, any of our past episodes or anything else related to what we are doing here in Talking Musicology. So please write in. Thanks as ever for listening to us and. Till next time, see you later. Bye.